I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson. Short, sharp on for you today. Tour de France, stage 19. One of those sort of pure transitional stages after three hard days in the mountains. The sprinters were happy to see today's stage. But was it going to actually end up being a day for the sprinters? I think yesterday I picked it as being a sprinter's day. And I think, Benji, you might have been in two minds. Um, you thought a break with the hand might have gone, but also it was possible to be a sprint as well. And, yeah, something interesting happened. It was kind of not, neither of those things. But it was started in Bourgogne-Bresse, finishing in Champagnol, 167Ks. No one was terrified by this profile at all. Just a few rolly climbs here and there, uh, the biggest of which was 4.2Ks, 4.5%, uh, with about 82Ks into the stage. That was just a Category 4. Other than that, the intermediate sprint was quite deep into the stage, unlike the previous stages where it was maybe, it was even within the first 15Ks the other day. But this was with 117.5Ks done. At the end of sort of a long, oh, I have, if I had to guess, a 2 to 3% climb, maybe 4% in places, but not a very long one either. Oh, just a long drag, but not a pure climb. That was the sprint in Mornor, and then a descent from maybe 155Ks to 162Ks, and then a sort of false flat uphill flat into the finish. So pretty varied profile. It would depend on how the riders rode it. Obviously, the big thing for today was the green jersey competition with Sagan needing to gain as many points on Bennett as possible. I, I can't recall how many points he was behind at the start of the day, but it was it was over 50. So not many chances with just today, with the intermediate and the finale, and then the points on offer in the last stage in Paris. Obviously, no points on offer tomorrow. But yeah, what happened, Benji? Did a break go or did did Dehent even try and get in a break early today? Dehent did not try at all. And it was one thing I feared because we've got a stage that is basically not really for Ewan. But yesterday evening, Thomas Dehent said in an interview that he was going to try for Ewan. I was pretty sure already yesterday evening that it wasn't going to stick, that he was not going to actually go into the breakaway. So that did not end up happening. But one person that definitely wanted to go into the breakaway today was Rémi Cavagna the TGV of Clément Ferrand once again, and he launched his attack. He opens up a gap of 40 seconds or something, and people tried to bridge up. In previous stages, that worked, and there were people with him. But today, he just stormed on, and suddenly had a gap of a minute, a minute 20, and there were people attacking behind, but they couldn't really catch up. Suddenly, a chasing group did form, but they were like two minutes behind Cavania properly. That group included the likes of Vambala, Guillaume Martin, surprisingly, and in the peloton, Jumbo started pacing a tiny bit to close that down. I don't think Guillaume Martin is a real danger for them, but they probably didn't want any other teams to get involved in the chase today. So probably wanted to neutralize Guillaume Martin to prevent the people that are just ahead of him in GC to mingle themselves in the chase. The second group had been caught at that point and Cavanaugh was storming onwards for 
a long day in the breakaway, a solo day. We had Bora pacing in the peloton at the start there with CCC to control the minutes of it. He didn't really get too much time, Cavagna, up to a good 2 minutes 40, 2 minutes 50, and never above that. One thing we did see was a Bora rider at the back of the peloton, one that actually ended up abandoning because he was stung by a bee in his mouth. Pistolbeger, and he uh, had an allergic reaction. He's apparently in the hospital and is looking better at the moment. Well, probably not looking better with the allergic reaction, but he's feeling better, which is probably a good thing. So great to hear that. We're just before the intermediate sprint on those hills. We were expecting Bora to start actually mashing their pedals and trying to drop Bennett before that intermediate sprint and then trying to get the full points at the finish line. But I was kind of disappointed in them because they started at the bottom and they climbed for a bit at a higher pace. The gap went down. But at a certain point, Sagan probably said to his teammates, no, we're stopping it. And they, they stopped chasing. So I was really surprised by that. I expected more. Uh, I thought they'd try, but I'm not surprised they gave it up, especially with Postelberger having to abandon. On, you know, that's unfortunate for them. He's probably their second strongest man on the flat, just about after Daniel Loss. But you just, I'm going to have to do a full piece on the whole Sagan Green jersey competition. But when you look at the team they've brought, it's always it's incredible how well they have done on certain flat stages for Sagan in the green jersey competition because there's no riders like Bodnar when he was at Tinkoff around him um, that can really pace hard on the flat. He, all he's got really is Oss and Purstelberger. And then Kamner and Shackman. Shackman were there for stage wins. Kamner was there as a super domestique for Emmanuel Buchmann in the mountains. Like it's just not designed to yeah, pace really hard on the flat or even on like power climbs like this. On on the climb where they split the race ages ago, that was steeper than this. That was a cat three up to 6%. When they put Bennett into under pressure as well in other stages for intermediate sprints, the, the gradients were like 8%, I think, where they really snapped him. Like Bennett, Bennett's okay on a climb. Like he gets over the Milano-San Remo climbs fine in the wheel, Um until the Poggio, when they're going nuclear speed on the steep bits, usually he gets over the Tupressa fine. Uh, he did this year, I think, from memory. So he's not complete trash on these sort of power climbs. Uh, and especially if Bora doesn't have the team to just be absolutely lighting it up. And as well, the Kony Quickstep had f- fantastic tactics from them. It was like the longest reverse lead out I've ever seen, having Cavagna up the road. He'll gobble up the maximum points in the... Uh, in the intermediate sprint, he means quick step. Tim de Klerk gets to take the day off and he just gets to chill for a bit. And we'll talk about Tim de Klerk a bit later. Yeah, so all the quick step domestiques got to chill whilst Bora had to pace. Yumbo Visma weren't going to, they weren't interested today, Yumbo Visma. They took today off. And Lotto don't have very many men left. They've lost, they lost Degenkolb and Gilbert early. And they're probably cooked after trying to battle the time cut for three straight days. So doesn't surprise me that Bora didn't have the firepower to do it. I think they were going to see how it went for 500 metres, 800 metres, and then maybe the climb wasn't as steep as they thought. So why why put your, other, your riders in the bin for nothing? And Bennett was doing a really good job of marking Sagan all stage. And in previous years, Sagan doesn't really need a lead out like that. In previous years, Sagan would be able to snap attack out of the peloton and Sam Bennett wouldn't be able to hold his wheel on a climb like that. It's just crazy to think like, yeah, 2016, Sagan, 
well, any any Sagan really, um, 2013 as well. If he'd attacked on a climb like that with full vigour, someone like Sam Bennett wouldn't be able to hold his wheel. So definitely not in the in the best form of his career. And so that all played into it as well, I think. But, yeah, that's pretty much the green jersey competition done. Um, from the way I see it, uh, mathematically, I think Sagan can catch up, but it's it's almost impossible, right? Yeah, it's almost impossible at this point then. It certainly was made even more impossible when they were closing into the intermediate sprint at the back of the peloton, as you said, you were not looking very fine because Lotto was pretty tired already from the previous stages, but he was trying to hold on as much as possible and even lingered off the back for a tiny bit during the stage. But towards the intermediate sprint, just before that, you said Covignal took full points, but the other sprinters did not take the other points. Why? That's because we had a sneaky counterattack by Cosnefla, which, well, <laughs> I, I'd say we can both somewhat laugh about it because... We've been memeing him quite a bit the last few weeks. But also Pierre Roland, attack de Pierre Roland. Roland was there as well. So we've got Cosnefa, Roland and Roland in the counterattack at that point behind Cavagna. And that's about two and a half kilometers from the intermediate sprint. There was no real pace starting to happen at like full force. We saw Bora pace quite a bit, but it wasn't like they were trying to kill themselves to get these guys back. So Cosnefa ended up taking the second spot there in the intermediate sprint. Rowan third and Roland in fourth. My guess for these attacks is that they are still trying to show their faces for the super combativity. Maybe that's why they're trying it. I don't know. It's a bit of a, a theory, but yeah, there's no other point to or reason why they would do this. Nonetheless, in regards to the rest of the uh, sprinters, Bennett actually beat Sagan once again at the intermediate sprint. One thing that was noticeable was the fact that Mark, who was beaten by Sagan for the first time in the Tour de France, and I think it's basically because Merku knows that Sigan can have that extra point. He's not going to get Bennett back unless he crashes out or anything at this point. So Bennett is pretty secure in green. And let's see what flows into the rest of the stage here. Because that moment we had plenty of attacks in the back in the peloton. And we actually eventually, after quite a bit, saw Kavanaugh getting caught. And the front group forming just one group with the peloton again. As they were caught, then attacks followed again, like so for Havamon and such. Eventually, a group was formed. Luke Rowe, Peter Sagan, Oliver Narsen, Sam Bennett, David Ayn, Steven Van Havamon, Trentin, Jack Bauer, Mezgetz, and Arndt and Crow Anderson. So, two Sunweb riders, two riders from CCC, and I think two riders from the Koenig Quickstep as well with David Ayn's there. They probably sensed there was no appetite from the sprinters' teams, or the sprinters' teams weren't really able to... <laughs> Um, pace them back and with Jumbo Visma the strongest team with Tony Martin pretty fresh not really interested in chasing that back that break quickly got a gap of about two and a half minutes it was at that point we saw Thomas De Hent, who was pacing on the front for Lotto Sidal just said nope <laughs> stop no more and they sat up and we knew the win for the stage was going to come out of that breakaway and it was kind of like a, a pre prelude to what might happen in the Belgian cha- uh, the Belgian team in the World Championships. You've got Nyssen, Sturven, and Van Avermaet there. Sagan was just being marked by Bennett the entire time, and we knew an attack was going to come from Solon Anderson at some point because he's not going to go to the line with Sturven, Bennett, and Sagan, or any of the other riders, really. Luca Mezgetz himself is probably a good sprinter as well. And with so many teams having, well, multiple teams having two riders, I was kind of surprised what with what happened, to be honest. Like, there weren't that, oh, there were a few 
half-hearted attacks of the group, some softening up attacks. And then I think with about 18Ks to go, 17.5Ks to go, Soren Anderson hit, he found this perfect spot where he could just run into like a little dip with some momentum. And then he went into this downhill section and he just hit it hard on the right-hand side once again. Once again, it was Peter Sagan on the front looking at him with Bennett on his wheel. Sagan had been trying to drop Bennett a few times. He was kind of trying to attack Bennett. Bennett was stuck to him like a, I don't know, like a limpet. I don't want to say leech, more like a limpet. And, yeah, there was some still some rolly climbs. That was where Sagan was trying to put the hurt onto Bennett with maybe uh, 22Ks to go. One of them started, the last major one, because I guess if you could drop ben, uh, Bennett and the, the rest of the group could come with him, he could put 20 points or how many, or 50 points onto him at the line. Yeah, Crow Anderson just went, and we saw when he went, no one reacted. Sturvin looked at his back wheel go. The two CCC riders, Trentin and Van Avermaet, no response from them. And Mitchelton Scott started pacing too late once again, like Jack Bauer. Maybe he couldn't, but maybe he wasn't there at that moment. But yeah, I, no one really started pacing with any fervor for quite a while until Cranderson immediately had a 30-second gap. And then they were like, oh, shit, maybe we should chase down this <laughs> the stage winner from the other day who did a very similar thing the other day. and But by then it was almost too late because he was rolling into this as I said at the top of the show, a pretty long descent um, for about oh, 10 kilometres even. And, yeah, he was hitting it really hard and no one was really wanting to pace. It was kind of a, a typical dilemma where the teams with two teammates, say Mitchelton Scott and CCC, well, Bauer probably wasn't that strong, so he's not able to bring it back on his own. And Trenton and Van Avermaet, I haven't seen working very well the whole tour. Um, they seem like they've basically been riders on different teams. And Van Avermaet was the one who should have been attacking before Trentin. Trentin was the one who, if I recall correctly, had actually attacked with Sagan and Bennett on his wheel just before the Anderson attack, so he was a bit tired. I thought they should have attacked in a different order. Um, but, yeah, they're both leaving CCC, I presume, at the end of this year. Van Avermaet off to Asia Duar, so, Yeah. They weren't riding with much cohesion. The three Belgians, Narsen, Van Avermaet, Sturven, weren't riding with much cohesion. <laughs> like, I don't know who's going to be the one pulling next week. We can talk about that, I think, in the World Champs preview show. And obviously, Sunweb, uh, Nicky Sant's not going to ride it back. And Quickstep were more worried about Bennett, I think, with... Like, Quickstep were happy, actually, to see Karnas and go up the road because it just meant maximum points were going to get taken. And they didn't need to stress as much about Sagan attacking Bennett. And then all the other riders and were just, yeah, if you pull, if you make a real effort to pull it back, you're just going to get attacked by somebody 45 seconds later. So why do anything? And then, you know, I see Trentin, I think I saw his tweet already, a quote that, oh, everyone raced not to lose or something. It's like, well, yeah, man, but you, you're the guy, you, you had two team, you had two riders in the same team in that break. Why should Sturvin do a lot of work? He should try and attack and close that gap. Why don't you put Greg Van Avermaet on the front to empty himself? That would be my response. Um, but Trenton's a nice guy. I mean, he's probably just frustrated with what happened. But yeah, Cranderson got a good gap. He just kept extending it. Went out to 45 seconds, held stable there when they started chasing with a little bit more enthusiasm. But then it went out to a minute, and I think they actually pretty much started attacking each other. So Cranderson took his second stage win for this year's Tour de France, the third for Sunweb. 
the much maligned Teen Sunweb. No win for Case Bowl yet, although we still got stage 21 to go. But yeah, when he hit that ramp with 20 with 18Ks to go, Benji, I think you might have even called it then. Sonic Anderson, genius, well-timed attack as always. He is so good at it. And I think it's harder to well-time these attacks than people think because a lot of people point that pure luck for this, that he's purely lucky that they do not follow his attack but do follow the others. But that is because he chooses the moment to attack based on the previous attacks. He sees which riders respond to what. And because of that, he probably knows that people are getting frustrated and won't respond on the next attack. And I think there's much more tactical thought going into such an attack than people actually think. So it's a very well-deserved victory for Sunweb. They did it once again. And it's great teamwork because he didn't have to do it alone because throughout the stage, Nicholas Roach was pacing like quite a bit next to the Bora guys. So yeah, he caused the possibility to make this happen because otherwise Kavanyan might have still been up the road. And if that was the case, then there might not have been so many attacks and there might not have been an elite group getting away like this. So he certainly had the support of his team in this one as well. And yeah, he, he pulled it off. Honestly, great work. Yeah, 100% agree on him making it look easier than it really is. You know, he's, he's hit it when Sagan and Bennett were on the front. They're obviously not going to chase him. They just pull the turn uh, and sort of been stymied by Bennett. Trenton and Sagan were there. And all the other riders who maybe were would have changed immediately were kind of in the back left of the group. So couldn't have, he was on the right-hand side of the road. It wasn't the first attack. Maybe he was sensing that, yeah, after all those softening up attacks, it was really the moment to hit it. He's also a rider that he just 100% commits to his attacks. Uh, it's the opposite of Alaphilippe. He, it's one and done. He, hits that, he attacked. He didn't look back once that I saw. He just 100% focused until the last 250 metres he looked back and couldn't believe. He didn't believe he had a one-minute gap. So, yeah, hats off to Soren Anderson. Once again, fantastic work from Sunweb. Taking three stages in the Tour de France is incredibly impressive. Um, Mitchell and Scott sort of are a similar tier team and did that, I think, last year. It's very difficult to do something like that, and especially with the level of this year's tour. So hats off for Sunweb. But yeah, that was the stage. Sagan looks like the green jersey is gone from him. No movement on GC, obviously. they all. I think the, the Peloton came in at like seven minutes down, so they literally <laughs> pedaled it in 150 watts afterwards. But the big stage coming up, stage 20, an ITT that we are all keen to see for a number of reasons. There's three different reasons that you should be excited about this individual time trial. And if you haven't, I just put a video up about it. Benji put a thread up on Twitter about it as well. You should go and check out. You should probably read them in conjunction, actually. My video was about whether they should do a bike change, and Benji was all about GC movement and uh, the KOM jersey as well. So they're on diff different topics, but read together, they should be pretty good. But, yeah, it's 30, what is it? Uh, yeah, 36.2-kilometre stage, I think, officially. 5.9-kilometre climb, 8.5% gradient is the Planche de Belfi. Before that is 30.3 k's of rolling flat. It's pretty much pancake flat for the first 15. Then they got some rolly climbs. Uh, one, one biggest one's 1.8 k's at 4.2%. That crest at 25 k's. There's then a, a reasonably technical descent with three like hairpin corners after that, and then another three k's of flat 
before the climb. Apparently, they start the clock the clock for the climb with after thirty k's is done. So there's a a clock timing the actual time uh, the actual climb time, and that is what the KOM points will be awarded on. Who is the quickest on the climb, not the overall uh, stage. So there's a lot of things to think about here with this stage. I'm excited, obviously, to see who will win the stage. Um, we can talk about who the favourites will be for that as well. I'm excited to see whether Carapaz sets the quickest time or who sets the quickest time, what will happen with the KOM jersey. I kind of hope Pikachu takes it, actually. He's two points behind Carapaz on 72, Carapaz on 74. And obviously, we should be excited about what's going to happen on GC. I mean, 57 seconds is the lead for Roglic over Pikachu. That's it's a pretty tall order, and I think Jumbo Visma are very, very confident. But um, as well, there's other things. Like, I think I'm actually getting more and more confident that Richie Port can make up that time on uh, Miguel Angel Lopez. But, yeah, what what excites you most about tomorrow's individual time trial, Benji? Well, there's quite a few things. I don't see a real possibility of Roglic losing the TDF here. And we have discussed this before. There's that vigorous time trial that they both did, the National ITE, uh, and on that one, Pogacar took the victory on Roglic. You calculated whether the bike change there was worthy. Was that worthy on that one, or...? Yeah, Roglic lost because he didn't change his bike. That's what I said. Made pe- made some people pretty mad, but apparently Pogacar's team, they figured out that he gained 50 seconds or 45 seconds from it. Otherwise, why would he have done it? And yeah, Roglic didn't change, so... Yeah, he only won by nine seconds, Pogaccio. So, yeah, he actually it made a difference there. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And additionally, the fact is that this time trial is just past the COVID offseason. They have that bike change additionally. It's extremely hard to judge based on this individual time trial. And because of that, I tend to look more towards the historical consistency of Roglic's ITTs and he's... He's never really terrible at them. I think the only bad one he did was that one in 2018, but I don't think we can really base off of that anymore. It's 2020. He's done great ET since then in Grand Tours. He's won a Grand Tour since then. So I don't think it's as easy as saying, well, he was bad at the end of the 2018 TDF. So I'm guessing he's going to be bad here. I don't think that's going to work, that that ideology. Nonetheless, yeah, that means that I think that Pogacar is not going to pass Roglic here for a for yellow, do you have a different mindset on that, or no? I don't think he, I don't think he can. Even with Roglic is probably going to put a fair bit of time into him in the first thirty k's. I'd expect even if Roglic doesn't change his bike, I think it's probably if he gains thirty seconds on the first thirty k's, and then he's got fifty-seven seconds on Pagacha before the climb, and they do the climb at the same speed, but he doesn't change the bike, so he gets punished by forty seconds. He still wins GC, so. Yeah, it's really uh, it's a it's an uphill battle for Tadej Pogacar tomorrow, and um, I don't think he can do it unfortunately. Just because, yeah, that's why I said the other day that that forty seconds out to fifty seven seconds, I I thought was pretty important, and uh, it's a, it's kind of a shame that crosswind stage. I guess the crosswind stage meant we had the Perisud stage, and the crosswind stage itself was exciting. But yeah, Pogacar losing that time, if they were on the same time. I would be so G'd up for this time trial. Like, that'd be crazy. Um, one for the history books, GC being decided like that. But still, never say never. But I think Roglic is like a $1.08, so has over a 90% chance of winning GC based on the markets. That 
That seems a little bit actually too much for me. I still think Pogacar is an unbelievable rider. I'd say his chances of winning GC Rob was more like 87%, but yeah, it's it'd have to be a complete capitulation or a mechanical or Pogacar would have to do something historical to to win tomorrow. Um, but more third position I'm more interested in. Now, Richie Port is down, what, 100 seconds, is it, on Miguel Angel Lopez? Um, he's... No, sorry, it's only 90 seconds. It's 89 seconds on Miguel Angel Lopez. I think Richie Port can gain that. If Miguel Angel Lopez has a bad day, if he gets things wrong, if he doesn't change his bike, or if he does change it and stuffs it up, um, if he doesn't pace it well, like... People forget that a climb like uh, a TT like this is very difficult to pace, and that's actually why it suits the specialists like Dumoulin. That was why he was a lot of people's pick for this stage because it's just he's a professional time trialist and a specialist who knows how to actually sort out. Okay, what power do I need to do in the first thirty k's? I know that I can probably do this speed and and really take off a lot of power in that 30Ks because I've actually got a good CDA and set up and then I can just fucking destroy the climb. Whereas, yeah, maybe Lopez, he's not used to doing 30Ks, which will be 45 minutes, by the way. It's not flat exactly. 45 minutes on the TT bike in that position, then doing a 6K, 8.5% climb, how are his legs going to respond to that? Um Will he have already lost 45 seconds, 50 seconds to Port before they start the climb? Um, so I think it's possible that Port takes third. It's not the most likely thing to happen, but, yeah, I think it, it actually could happen, and, and I hope it does happen, but maybe that's just my Australian bias. Do you think it's a possibility, Benji? I think the possibility of Port overtaking Lopez is extremely small, and the reason for that is Lopez in 2020 has ridden an amazing time trial in Algarve where he basically ended between the proper specialists, Rohan Dennis, Stefan Kuhn, Sharkman, Kwiatkowski, Bevan, Lampard, and Evenepoel. And that's all within a 40-second range of that. He became fifth in that, so he was on same time with Bevan and Sharkman there. So that's not a bad time trial, 20.3 kilometers rolling hills. That is basically the first 30 kilometers of this time trial of tomorrow but in a 20-kilometer version. So I think he's going to lose less time on the rolling hills section than people are anticipating. And I also look at the past then, and I see that he's never actually terrible at them, unless like one day in a Giro two years ago, or a Vuelta two years ago, I don't know what it was, where he totally capitulated. But last year, his time trials were pretty on point. He's never terrible at them. And he's going to have to need a really bad day for Port to pass him. In regards to what you said about, for example, a Dumoulin, who is supposedly a great time trialist. Let me put it in order here, because I've got a big list of the riders in top 10 that are actually good and bad at time trialing, because we've got position 4 to 10 that can basically have leaps. Of those, we have Dumoulin, who is a good time trialist, but we don't have a reference for him since 2018. So... It's hard to guess how good Dumoulin actually is in time trialing in 2020. Next to that, Caruso is on 11 right now. He's very close to top 10. He's a good time trialist. He's consistent in that. Richie Port, good, consistent in time trials. The good and inconsistent time trialists, for example, are Uran, Mars, and Valverde. 
they have good time trials and then they've got pretty bad ones as well. So it's hard to guess which of these riders will do well. I'm guessing Uran will do a tiny bit worse because his form at the moment doesn't seem to be up there. And he crashed today, by the way, at the end of the stage. So not looking too bright. And then finally, the mediocre to bad time trialists are Adam Yates, who's not always a bad time trialist, but he's never actually properly good at them. And then we obviously have Lando as well, who's a pretty mediocre to bad time trialist. So we can see plenty of changes. I see Dumoulin jumping up. I see Caruso jumping over Volvade for the 10th spot, for example. I see Port securing his fourth. I don't see him passing Lopez. I expect Moss to jump over Landa. I'm saying a lot of stuff right now, but I can see a lot of movement in the top 10 happen. And I think that we're going to end with a top 10 in the form of Roglic, Pogacar, Lopez podium. Now we've got Port in fourth. Mars jumping over Landa coming in fifth. And Landa probably saving a sixth spot, I think, on paper. He'd have to really capitulate and Dumoulin would need a really good day to jump over him. So I'm guessing Landa sixth, Dumoulin seventh. And Uran just about jumping over Adam Yates for eighth. Yates probably dives down straight from 7th to ninth. I don't see him saving anything against, well, the people behind him. We've got Uran and Dumoulin, both people that can properly time trial. So I'm guessing that I'm looking forward to seeing how far Dumoulin's time trial is at the moment. That's one of the key points. And yeah, I genuinely think that we might see someone out of this actually winning the time trial. But first of all, do you see... People in the top 10 leaping over each other as much as I do? or Yeah, I do. Because when I was doing, when I was calculating the bike change thing, I realized, holy shit, this is a, a over one hour duration time trial. And how often is Mikel Lander doing one hour TT efforts? Maybe he is. Maybe I'm not giving him enough credit. But I feel like there's a big potential for one of these GC guys to just have an absolute shocker and lose like four minutes um, just because of the duration of the time trial, because it finishes on such a hard climb because yeah, they're good climbers, but that 30 Ks in the legs beforehand. Yeah. Like, especially when it's rolly terrain like that, I feel like Grant Thomas in good form would have just monstered this for him too. For him would have absolutely monstered this time trial. Um, and I think if, yeah, he would have, probably been my favorite for the stage if this was like 2016 or whatever but yeah I just I worry I worry for Mikel Landa tomorrow uh and yeah Miguel Landa Lopez I don't like those facts you spat at me about him kind of being okay at the TT it's not good news for me but um yeah hopefully hopefully Richie just has an incredible day tomorrow it's it'll be interesting to see their splits I'm really keen to see who who goes out hard initially who reserves a lot for the final climb now, do you think Pagaccia will care about the KOM jersey at all? Or will he just he'll be riding full for GC, obviously? If he does so, he's making a mistake, in my opinion. There's always something that can happen to Roglic in this time trial. He should not give up on that just for that KOM jersey. He's going to have plenty of chances in the future to have it at the end of his career after he's won potentially a Tour de France. But if he makes, well, the mistake of caring about this KOM jersey, then he's literally putting less effort into trying to still win this Tour de France. You never know what happens. Honestly, you should always try it. And if, for example, Roglic actually capitulates tomorrow and has a bad time trial, the worst of his career or something, and Pogacar went for the KOM jersey 
and Lopez wins the fucking Tour de France because of that, then I'm going to find it funny. <laughs> so it's very unrealistic, but... Yeah, we don't think he will. We don't think he actually will do that. Um, he might, like, luck into it just because he does such a good time. But, yeah, he, I, I don't think he will either. That'd be, that wouldn't make sense. So who, who's your pick for the stage win tomorrow? We've got Tom Dumoulin, Roglic himself, Pogacar, um, Peo Bilbao has to be mentioned as well. Uh, Caruso, probably not at that level. Lart Van Aert, will he actually go for it and actually put in the effort to win the stage or will he rest legs for Champs-Élysées or World Champs? They're the main names I'm thinking about. Have I missed anyone off that list? I think those are the main guys, honestly. Thomas Lehen said he wanted to uh, save the energy today, potentially for tomorrow. So we'll see what he does. He's not terrible at time trials and ground tours, so you never know what happens. He might end up in the top five, certainly. But my favorite is going to have to be Wout Fanard. And it's a bit of a stretch because he said today that he's not sure whether he wants to go for all the goals because he's got, well, tomorrow the time trial, the day after that, Champs-Élysées, a few days after that, World Championships and World Championship ITT. So he's got a few days that are important ahead of him. And he also added to that, though, that he still feels like it's a Tour de France time trial. So he can't just let it go. But he has these people around him that he totally appreciates that have to keep him from trying to win everything because greed might come with getting too tired for the world champs, for example. So they're calculating it. That's what he said. And he's going to decide tonight whether he goes for the IDT or, uh, or champs or just focuses fully on the world champs. I think he has to go for the ITT because he's what, uh, 10% chance of winning it, 15% chance of winning it. His chance of winning the world champs probably isn't as high as that, given the length of the race and yeah, how many other sides of the field, etc. And yeah, Tour de France ITTs, they don't come around every day. If you're one of the favourites, I feel like you have to go for it. And he'll probably still be able to back up for the world champs anyway. Uh, my pick is Roglic for the stage. I think, yeah, I think he'll do really well. Uh, to be honest, I think he'll... It suits him really well, this TT. So my pick is Primoz Roglic, but probably won't bet on him, to be honest, because his odds will be pretty short. I haven't really looked at them, but I expect him to be the favourite and Dumoulin second favourite. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if Dumoulin doesn't have a fantastic day, actually, either. Um, you know, he maybe he's not able to do that big watts per kilo that you need to do for that final climb. But I'm hoping, my big hope is that there's some absolute chaos with the bike changes some complete fuck-ups, people dropping their bikes, people in the wrong gears, people picking the wrong spot. That's what I really want to see. That's why I put the video up, mainly because I've said my piece. I've said I even went on to Google Earth and said where people need to change. But, um, yeah, I, 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 it's a shame Roman Bardet and Thibaut Pinot are in contention because that might have been th some good theatre. But uh, that's the Stage 20 tomorrow, the last opportunity for GC movement. Then we're on to Paris, stage 21. Then the Tour de France is finished and then there's no rest. We might take one day of rest and then get on to the World Champs preview that we need to do. I'm going to do Giro Rosa wrap-up podcast tomorrow, catch, catch up on a fair few of the stages and maybe a few of the other missed graces as well just to tie up some loose ends. There's Skoda Tour of Luxembourg still. There's uh, oh, Tour de Slovakia. I'm not sure if that's within our wheelhouse. There's also the Ronde, Ronde de Lizard uh, under-23 development race. I might make a few comments there as well because one of the winners for the stages is a uh, 
fan of Lantern Rouge. So, yeah, this might do a little wrap-up Loose Ends podcast tomorrow, headlined by the Giro Rosa stages uh, 7 and 8. There's a bit of news from that. Hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to give us a review or a rating if you have a chance on Apple Podcast Player or comment on the YouTube videos as well. If you disagree with anything we said or subscribe to that. We actually, I know guys and girls, we haven't put enough effort. Well, that's not true. We probably just haven't had enough time to maybe do the video recordings and edit them because Benji and I do all the editing, etc. for the YouTube videos. That's something we're going to look at, obviously. We've got the equipment to do it. But um, we do like putting the the videos or the recordings up on YouTube because that's where we have the engagement. And I think that's where a lot of podcasts miss out in that this should be more of a two-way street of podcasts. And a lot of them aren't, but the YouTube comments is a great way for us to interact with you. Some funny comments and some really informative ones as well. But thanks as always. See you later. Ciao.